This semester, we have been going through the Gospel of John together, and my hope in that is that as we read the Gospel of John, we're able to see Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, we may see the very character of God. Tim Keller, who was a pastor who came to speak awake back in September, said this, he said, Jesus himself is the main argument for why we should believe Christianity. So that's why we're doing this together, why we're looking at the Gospel of John. Um, And tonight, we're going to be looking at Jesus and the darkness. Jesus and our darkness. And this is fitting, right, the day after Halloween. Um, Halloween is is this weird holiday, isn't it? It's like this cheerful display of the darkest things possible. Uh, like last night, we took our kids trick-or-treating. Leo is five, Mary Landon's two and a half. And we were trick-or-treating in, in Ardmore, which is a neighborhood here in town. And um, we went to this one house, and there was, it was like, you know, the, the old lady had set up gravestones in her front yard. Um, and that's totally normal, right, to have a graveyard in your front yard. Not disgusting at all, the decay and possible disease from that. But anyway, so that's the display for Halloween. And so Leo and Mary Landon don't know what it is, so they trot up, and Leo's like, why are they graves here. Don't worry about it. Just go get candy. So he goes to the front and it's spooky, you know, super spooky. And the old lady, I don't know if she's old. She's just like a witch. Assuming she's old. She's probably young. But so she's sitting on the porch and she is so cheerful. Hey, so glad to see you. Have some candy. And it was just this odd juxtaposition, right, of a graveyard in someone's front yard and a cheerful lady handing out candy to anyone who came by. So this strange, playful display of death is what we celebrated last night. And um, something that's true in that is that we're acknowledging the persistent reality of a present darkness. Persistent reality of a present darkness. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at this story from John 9. And my outline is on the, I don't know what color this is, periwinkle paper. Um, and so if, you, if you're someone who takes notes, it's there. We're going to be talking about our present darkness and then God's penetrating light into the darkness. So let me pray quickly and then we'll begin. God, who is light, we ask now that you would come and open our eyes that we may see Jesus. Amen. So first ask the question, what is our present darkness? As I was thinking about this, the most simple way to say what our present darkness is, is suffering. And we see suffering in our stories We see suffering in our world, and we also see suffering in our own lives. So first, in our stories. So as I was trick-or-treating last night with Leo and Mary Landon, um, noticing the other Halloween costumes of the other kids, most every costume had something to do with darkness. Right? Most every costume had something to do with darkness, except for my children. Oddly, Leo was dressed as a Lego, and Mary Landon was dressed as a lamb. Not very dark, either of those. But so, you know, everything, everything from zombies and Grim Reapers... There were lots of zombies last night. Um, lots of zombies. Intermix these with like superheroes and tons of Harry Potter characters and also Star Wars characters. Um, why? Well, these stories have something about darkness in them, right? You've got um, stories of named darkness, right? They have categories of darkness and light, good and evil. And we know that darkness causes suffering. So in Star Wars, you've got the Empire, right? And it's the dark side. Um, and then in Harry Potter, you've got uh, Voldemort, can I say his name, and evil. Um, and then superheroes, you have this, this great cosmic struggle of good versus bad that actually plays out in the heavens um, as these superheroes are going at it with um, the armies of 
Gosh, I can't remember how these movies go. But you guys know the story. So, right, there's these stories of good and evil and light and darkness. And these, imagine, these stories fill our imaginations. And uh, the account of darkness fills these stories. So we see this in our stories. We also see this in the world. Um, as I'm getting older, I'm having a harder and harder time reading the news that comes across my computer and across my phone. Um, the darkness of the world is... Uh, maybe I'm just more aware, attuned to it, but it's becoming harder and harder to bear. Just the immensity of sadness in our world. Um, I was reading something this past month of the refugee crisis in Libya and these, um, these, these Libyan refugees who are crossing the Mediterranean. And um, the author was comparing the conditions of the boats that these refugees are coming across on to the slave ships that crossed the Atlantic 400 years ago. And uh, the um, photojournalist said that I've seen a lot of death, but not this thing. This is shocking, and this is what makes you feel you're not living in a civilized world. Right? So we have that. We also have the um, horrific news that's coming from Syria right now, and, and ISIS and their, um, and their evil work. Right? Darkness. Our world is filled with darkness. And it's not just abroad in the world. It's in our own lives, too. Right? We know darkness. Um, think of the things that you hide from your parents. Think of the things that you hide from one another. Think of the things you've done or the things that have been done to you. Right? All of us have darkness. Um, and much of the human experience is connected to darkness. And the suffering of this world is a result of this darkness. And this is where our story opens tonight. Jesus is walking with his disciples and they see a man who is born blind... And the disciples asked Jesus, whose fault is this? What's the source of this man's suffering? Where does his ocular darkness originate? And we ask the same question we see when we see or experience suffering, right? We say, why? Um, and everyone around us is groping in the dark for an answer. Why? Now, in the first century Jewish context, people connected physical disability to sin. When they saw someone with a disability, their first thought was, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he would suffer blindness his entire life and be constrained to the life of begging. Now, we do this too. Um, one of the first questions that we ask when a tragedy hits, whether it be an injury, a death of a loved one, your own depression and anxiety, your friend who was sexually assaulted, one of the first things we ask is, what did I do or what did they do to deserve this? Right? What, what happened that I would deserve this? In effect, what we're saying is, who sinned? Why did this happen? Now, Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, um, he charts the different responses of different cultures throughout the world to the problem of suffering. And so he goes through this list and he says, first, there's the moralistic framework, which this is the framework of the disciples, that suffering is caused by wrongdoing. And if we do good, then we'll achieve eternal bliss. Then he, he sets up the self-transcendent framework. This is Buddhism. Um, that suffering is an illusion. If we detach from the world and from suffering, then we will reach enlightenment. And he presents the fatalistic framework, where suffering is just a part of life. Right? You suck it up, you endure it, and you will have greater glory and honor because of it. Right? This is the framework of suffering in the new Mad Max movie, Valhalla. Right? This is more glory, more honor. Same true of the, the Norse mythology and Thor. Right? The, the, you endure the suffering for the sake of a greater honor. Um, it's dualistic framework. It's another one that we have. Um, and this is, like, this is Star Wars. Um, suffering exists because of some sort of cosmic conflict. Because of suffering, 
It will purify the main actor, the main player. And at the end, um, the light side will triumph over the dark side. And finally, he presents the secular framework, which is the framework of our culture, um, where our culture tells us that suffering is an accident. And if you figure out the right technique to get through it, then we will have a better society because of it. Now, there are truths in all of these frameworks, but ultimately they don't, they don't count fully for the complexity of human suffering. And Keller says this. He says, to suffering, Buddhism says accept it. Karma says pay it. Fatalism says heroically endure it. And secularism says avoid it or fix it. And look at Jesus' answer to this question. He doesn't provide some theological or philosophical answer to the man born blind suffering, but he rather says, look, at me at ver- look with me at verse 3. Jesus answers him, It was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus' answer to this man's suffering is an ex- isn't an explanation of his past, but rather it's a gift from the future. Jesus is saying that the answer to the suffering of our world and the suffering in our own lives is not to look for an explanation, but rather Jesus is providing an answer in himself as he says, I am the light of the world. All right, so Jesus takes dust and spit and he touches the man's eyes on his eyes with this mud and says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so the man goes and he washes and he comes back seeing and then the rest of John 9 deals with the fallout of this healing and really presents us with two ways of living with our present darkness. Um, and we see this in the characters, those who claim to see and those who know that they are blind. So first, those who know who they are, that they are blind. Now, we're shown this in the man born blind. Right? He, the whole thing is he's saying, I was blind, then Jesus healed me, and now I see. And he actually says this over and over again. Now, for those who claim to see, we're shown this in just about everyone else. First, we see this in the neighbors who claim to see. Look at me with verse 8. Verse eight. Um, they look at him and they say, is this the man who used to sit and beg? It can't be him. It must be someone who looks like him. And meanwhile, the guy's saying, hey, it's me. I'm the man. And confused, they ask him. They say, well, how were your eyes opened? And he responds in verse 11. He said, well, the man named Jesus made mud, rubbed it in my eyes, said to me, go wash to Sol- and Salome and wash. And so I went and washed and I received my sight. And then we see this in the Pharisees as well, who claim to see, starting in verse 13. Um, they put him on the stand and they ask him how he can see. And again, he tells this simple story of Jesus putting mud on his eyes, him washing, and now he's seeing. And rather than seeing this work, this work that Jesus calls the very work of God, in verse 3, they claim to see and rather look for any other answer than what's right in front of them. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the children's story, The Emperor's New Clothes. I'm sure you all know this story. Um, it's of the emperor, and he's in some distant kingdom, and he cares nothing, cares about nothing except wearing the finest clothes, wearing and displaying the finest clothes. And so these two weavers who are traveling, weavers, um, they promise him the finest, best suit of clothes from this fabric that's invisible. It's invisible to anyone who is unfit for the position of king, or anyone who is hopelessly stupid. All right, so of course, everyone pretends that they can see the clothing, right? And so the emperor's ministers can't see the clothes, but they pretend because they have this sphere of appearing unfit for the positions, and, for the, and so the emperor does the same. He pretends to see it because he doesn't want to be seen as unfit for his job. 
So finally, the weavers report that the suit is finished, and they mind dressing him, and the emperor marches in procession before his subjects and the townspeople. They play along with the pretense because they don't want to appear unfit for their positions, and they don't want to appear stupid. And then finally, right, there's this child who's in the crowd who's too young to understand the desirability of keeping up this pretense. And he blurts out that the emperor is wearing nothing at all, and the cry is taken up by others. He's naked. He's wearing nothing at all. And while the emperor suspects that this assertion is true, he continues the procession. Right? And so ultimately, this is a story about the foolishness of claiming to see and then the wisdom in knowing that you are blind. Right? The whole city is caught up in this self-generated claim to see the clothes. And like the boy in that story, we've got the man who was born blind in our story. And one commenter calls him um, the man who always tells the truth. Right? Every time he's, um, he's put on the stand about what happened, he always tells the truth. Um, and the opposition um, to this man is revealed after Jesus heals him. So why would Jesus healing this man be such a big deal? Right? It creates this huge conflict um, within the community. Why would this be such a big deal? Well, up until this point in the history of the world and of God's people, no one's ever been cured of blindness. And in the Old Testament, the recovery of sight for the blind was one of the markers of the coming Messiah. That he would be the one who would give sight to the blind. And that's what Jesus is doing in the story. By healing this man of his blindness, he's saying, I am the light of the world. I am the promised Messiah. And that's why the Pharisees are so concerned with the Sabbath and accusing him of being a sinner because they're terrified of the reality that Jesus could be who he claims to be. And they're trying to discredit him. And we're seeing in these two responses to our present darkness, claiming to see and knowing that you are blind, we're seeing that those who know they are blind, like the man, um, the man who always tells the truth, that those who know they are blind, they cause fear in those who claim to see. So we see this first in his parents. In their interaction with the Pharisees, they're scared. They're unwilling to get in their son's corner, but they keep their distance. We see this in verse 20, if you look with me at verse 20. Um, His parents answered, they ask him, is this your son who was born blind? How does he see? And their response, well, we know he's their son, we know he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see, you should just ask him. This is laughable. Yes, you do. You know how he got healed. He already told you like five times. Jesus did it. You're just scared. And rightly so, right? Because we're told that the leaders had agreed that if anyone confesses that Jesus is the Christ, they'll be thrown out. They'll be thrown out of the synagogue, which means they'll be thrown out of the community. They'll be excommunicated. And so the Pharisees return to the man who always tells the truth, and they ask him. And you can almost see him chuckling at the Pharisees in verse 30. He says, what an amazing thing. You don't know where Jesus comes from, and yet he miraculously gives sight to the blind. Hmm, I wonder why that is. And so the man who always tells the truth in his persistent truth-telling, in the face of those who claim to see, it leads him to being cast out of the community. It leads him to be exiled. And look at Jesus. Look at Jesus here. See how he responds to this man. This man who's been cast out from his people. Jesus goes and finds him. The light of the world comes after the man who was in darkness. And here we see that into our present darkness shines God's penetrating light. And this is Jesus' claim in verse 5. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
And we see that God's light invades the darkness. Look how Jesus pursues this man. No one approaches blind beggars, especially not in the first century. No one approaches blind beggars. No one touches people who are blind from birth. No one does that. And look at Jesus. He draws near to the outcast. He touches him so that he might wash and receive sight. God's light invades the darkness. And also we see that that as God shines his penetrating light into the world, the darkness actually resists the light. The darkness resists the light. When Leo, our son, was three, um, we were having a conversation about his bike. He'd just gotten this balance bike, which is a bike without pedals. Um, And he wanted to keep his bike in his bedroom. And we told him, no, Leo, the bike stay outside. Um, And so I told Leo, hey, I'm going to put your bike on the back porch. And Leo said, no. And I said, no, Leo, bike stay outside. So he says this to me. He says, dad, go upstairs in your room. Don't see what I'm doing. (laughs) Like he knows he's disobeying. And he tells me to leave so that I won't see it. All right. and, And Mary Clark that day told me that earlier in the day he said to her, mommy, go upstairs and take a nap. Because he wanted to eat candy. Like, <laughs> um, right, Mary Landon, our daughter, is figuring this out right now. When she's doing something that she doesn't want us to know about, um, we say, Mary Landon, what are you doing? And she says, not doing nothing. <laughs> right, it's obvious that she's doing something. And we're like, you're doing something. She's like, no, not doing nothing. Um, she usually has markers or makeup um, or candy. It's a lot of candy. Um, the Pharisees in the story are just like my children. Um, right In the darkness, they're resisting the light. And you and I are no different. Right? When you are exposed, what do you do? Do you tell the truth or do you hide? Is your life structured to keep you in the dark or are you seeking to be in the light? Do you avoid conversations with people because of fear of being exposed? Or do you pursue being known and loved in the depths of your soul? Now, one of the ways that we, um, we try to walk in the light here in RUF together is through our small groups. Um, and small groups, like we're figuring this out together, they're not perfect, but they're a place where um, groups of y'all get together, um, you open the Bible together, and you're committed to being honest with each other, um, committed to bringing your own darkness into the light, committed to praying for each other, that you might know the grace of Jesus together. And this is incredibly difficult work. This is incredibly difficult work, bringing your own darkness to the light. It's terrifying. Um, But it's also incredibly rewarding. Like I said last week, the transformation that Jesus brings is to take your shame and to transform it into joy. And the light comes into your darkness and transforms it into light. So we see that as God's penetrating light comes into the world, darkness resists the light. But those who yield to the light are transformed. I mean, look at the man who always told the truth. Look how he's transformed in the story. Beginning of the story, he's blind. Verse 11, he refers to Jesus as the man who's called Jesus. But then this progression begins to happen. Verse 17, he he claims that Jesus is a prophet. And then verse 35, towards the end, he says that Jesus is the son of man. Which is a title from the book of Daniel given to the Messiah who is coming to make all things new. Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this man who was born blind responds, who is he that I might believe in him? And Jesus says, it's me. And the man replies, Lord, I believe. And he worships him. 
This Sunday we had Sunday Night Fellowship, um, and for those of you who were there, um, you know the story. Preston Hill um, spoke, and he told the story of how Jesus, the light of the world, um, has invaded his life and invaded his darkness and transformed it. And Preston talked about how as he exposed his darkness, the sin in his life to others, to me and to his friends, Jesus transformed those places of shame into joy. Right? Jesus himself transformed the darkness into light. And this is because God's penetrating light transforms the darkness. And this is the story of the Bible. That in the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in creation, spoke light into the darkness. And after our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and ushered a new darkness into the world, our God of penetrating light pursued them and their children. In Psalm 139, King David writes of God's pursuing love, and he says this. He says, if I say, surely the darkness will cover me and light about me be night. Lord, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And then the prophet Isaiah, the great prophet through whom God promised the world a Messiah. He described the future Messiah this way. He wrote in chapter 29, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see, and the meek shall have fresh joy in the Lord. And then later in Isaiah, he writes that when your God comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And then in Isaiah 42, God speaking to Jesus and his bride, the church, He says this, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. In the first chapter of of John's gospel, John tells us that the true light, which enlightens everything, is coming into the world. And that light is Jesus Christ. Jesus in his incarnation in life, Jesus entered the darkness as the light of the world and gave sight to the blind. Jesus in his crucifixion, crucifixion and death. The light of the world is slain by darkness. And Jesus in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus conquered and defamed that very darkness. Jesus in his ascension into heaven, Jesus established victory over darkness. Jesus in his Pentecost, in the sending of the Spirit, he empowered the church to transform the darkness. And finally, Jesus in his return, when he comes back, he will obliterate the darkness by taking residence here on a new earth where we're told in the last chapter of the Bible that night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So how? How does this happen? How does Jesus, the light of the world, transform my darkness? We see in the story that God's penetrating light transforms the darkness through simple faith. Look at verse 7. Jesus tells the man... To go and wash. And he goes and washes. It's this act of simple faith. And then he comes back seeing. On Sunday night, um, Preston shared this story with us. He told the story of John Newton, um, who you may know is the author of the, the hymn Amazing Grace. And on the epitaph of his tombstone, um, he says this. He says that he was once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, for he was a captain and a first mate on a slave ship, was then, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith, the faith that he had long labored to to destroy. Simple faith that transformed his life from darkness into light. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says it this way. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Friends, the light of the world is yours through faith alone. Receive him. Finally, I want to end um, in tonight with a picture of what this faith looks like. So last night, as I've told you, we were trick-or-treating with the kids. We're in Ardmore. Um, and we really got a full picture of the diversity of this city. Um, we saw um, white folks and black folks and Hispanic, Latino folks. We saw middle class poor, saw young people and old people, we saw good costumes, not so good costumes, some people in no costumes. Um, We saw the masses shuffling up to the front doors with these gaping plastic pumpkins, and the way that Leo and Mary Landon said it, they said, happy trick-or-treat, close enough, Um, receive candy, so much candy given out, I'm sure it will be measured in tonnage, I mean the amount of candy that came out of these houses. And I know a handful of pastors who say that Halloween is the most Christian of our American holidays. It's the most Christian of our American holidays. Why would they say this? Because unlike Christmas, where Santa watches you like Big Brother and only gives you presents if you've been good. Think about it. It's kind of creepy. Only gives you presents if you've been good. On Halloween, you show up displaying your badness. Right, Bringing the darkness of whatever ghoul you're dressed as to the front steps of a stranger's house. And with greedy, outstretched hands, you say, trick or treat, which means give me candy. And then rather than casting you out, rather than shaming you and condemning you, what do they do? They give you candy. And then they give you more candy. Y'all, this is the gospel. You bringing your darkness to the front door of heaven with nothing but open hands to receive and receiving grace upon grace. Light into darkness the very presence of God to you in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that um, Jesus is the light of the world and that you have sent him to us, Lord, to drive the darkness away. Lord, help us to receive him that we might know um, his light and extend it to the world. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.